Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. UK Tech Weekly podcast. She came from Greece, she had a thirst for knowledge. She studied sculpture at St. Martin's College, and that's where I caught her ear with the UK Tech Weekly podcast, (laughs) the UK's premier audio upholstery, giving you a nice sit-down every Friday. The UK Tech Weekly podcast is an infotainment cake, baked by the editors of PC Advisor, Tech World, Mac World UK, and Computer World UK. You can find us on Acast, on SoundCloud, on iTunes, and pretty much everywhere from which you source podcasts. Every Friday we hold an audio inauguration, making unintelligible audio speeches to massive audio crowds of unspecified sizes and our former audio enemies, as we facilitate the peaceful transition of audio power from our mouths to your ears, in order to bring you no more than 40 minutes of informed tech chat on the hot tech topics of the past seven days. Please subscribe to our podcast, review it if you can and give it five stars, and tell your friends all about it. I'm Matt Egan, Editorial Director of IDG UK, and today I'm delighted to be joined in conversation by your brother from another mother, Dominic Preston, staff writer of Macworld UK. Hi. Your sister, as you would only have wished her, Tamlin McGee, online editor of ComputerWorldUK.com. Hello. And your short-term stepfather that no one really talks about anymore, but who does occasionally turn up to family occasions, often somewhat the worse for wear and short of cash. Henry Burrell, Senior Staff Writer of PC Advisor. On the head. This week we are talking Samsung, Survivalists and Evil. Come with me. I'm in the phone booth, it's the one across the hall, because my Samsung smartphone has yet to arrive. (laughs) Henry Burrell, what's not happening very soon in a galaxy that now feels very far, far away? Seems. Uh, It's nearly February, so that means it's nearly Mobile World Congress, so... All of us tech nerds are waiting for new phones. We'll be going out there. Uh, but Samsung won't be there for the first time uh, announcing a new Galaxy phone since 2014. Okay. So we had lots of fires that they were putting out, both PR, <laughs> PR fires and actual fires from the Galaxy Note 7. Uh, and they are trying their damnedest this year to go past that. So there's a couple of things. Yeah, the uh, Galaxy S5, S6 and S7 were all basically the biggest thing at Mobile World Congress. Yeah. And now they've confirmed that it won't be revealed at the show this the, year. The S8. The S8, yes. Have they said when it will be uh, launched? Yeah, so their, their well-named mobile chief, he's called DJ Co. Um, <laughs> he isn't a real DJ, but it will be <laughs> and, and <laughs> the end of March announcements. They've basically just bumped it back a month. Okay. So most people are probably thinking, why didn't they just announce it in February so we can all see it? But they're just treading very carefully now. 
they can't afford any mistakes with yeah. their next major release. And this phone is even more important now because of that. Well, it might also be, I guess, that they want to announce it and then it immediately be available. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're probably right there because they're talking about a late April release. So there'll be right. less of a gap between announcement and basically trying to get people to buy what is deemed to be a, a pretty important phone. What are we expecting from the Galaxy S8? Uh, it depends if you care about iterative updates to mobile phones, but uh, obviously <laughs> well, we do. I certainly care about those. <laughs> uh, you've got the S7, I believe, S7 Edge. So um, I do, yes. It's going to be a little bit different from that. And I think, I mean, it is getting a bit nitpicky, but since the iPhone came out, you could kind of argue that it's the same design for the last 10 years. Yeah. The uh, fingerprint things on the front, the home button, whatever. So the Samsung is probably going to have what's called an infinity display. That's probably a bit, bit of branding there. <laughs> but um, they'll just basically... There'll be hardly any bezel. Right. Uh, it'll be huge. So huge the glass goes the edge to edge, essentially. Yeah, and then probably at the top and bottom as well. Okay. Um, move the fingerprint sensor to the back. There are lots of rumours that they somehow try and build that technology into the screen, but yeah. they can't. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, it's going to have an iris scanner, which I still think is slightly unnecessary piece of tech to put on a yeah. phone. The the Note Seven had one, I believe, um, and they'll whack USB C on there as well. Okay. Um, but that's a whole other that's a whole other minefield of standardization that won't. won't I mean, happen. making making the display edge to edge in that way will have a have the effect of making it look different in yeah. a good way, like the edge yeah. does actually to an extent. I mean, that edge of mine is brilliant, but I smash it about every six weeks because, <laughs> because that whole screen thing is so um, delicate. But it does make it look really nice, which kind of matters yeah. if you're trying to encourage people to. And, and the advantage Samsung does have in that way is that they've got their first over their um, rivals. They tend to do it best, apart from when they catch fire. <laughs> and um, it just means that you have a phone that is smaller than an iPhone but has a bigger screen. Yeah, which um, is pretty compelling, really. Yeah. Um, it does make the iPhones next to them look a bit toy town. Kind yeah, of a little bit. Uh, I, know, I know what you mean. Um, so, uh, But then the other news that came with that around the same time, um, the same... Uh, same chief announced that they will continue with the Note brand as well. Right, so there will be a Galaxy Note 8. Yes, not at the same time, probably not this year, unless they're going to be really ballsy. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I just didn't expect that. I thought that they would probably, I mean, it was, they killed the Note 7 after, they should have just done that straight away. Yeah. They tried yeah. to re-release it. Um, Still fairly quick, I would say. I mean, it, it, I, it, I can't recall another manufacturer, like, killing a flagship line that yeah. quickly. Yeah, I was, ever, I was trying to think of a, a, anything we could compare it to, and the only thing I could think of, which now just looks like a tiny blip, but it's when uh, the iPhone 4 came out, and some people were basically holding it. Yeah, there was so no antenna right, yeah, yeah, those, those bumper things. Yeah, so they, they kind of just sidestepped that and just politely offered yeah. you a bumper and kept going. I mean, they weren't exploding and you know getting banned <laughs> no. on flights and... Um, yeah, not being able to hear is bad, but it's it is actually better than having something explode next to your face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good way to live your life. <laughs> so, how is Samsung doing in general? Would we say taking all this on board? Uh, we we, we talked we talked about this before on the pod, um, and yeah, I remember Jim Martin, a editor of PCA, saying it wouldn't matter; people will get over it. And at the time, I, I kind of disagreed. I thought, no, this is really this is major. But I mean, unless you did have a phone explode next to your face. <laughs> I don't know. I think Samsung are big enough to come back from it. I think if this phone, if they wisely waited to make sure it's going to be brilliant and not explode, um, I, th- I think they'll be fine. Do you think Do you think that Samsung will continue to be kind of the flagship Android phone? I know Google's bringing out 
nice phones now yeah. as well. But yeah, that was... I remember when, when Android first started being a thing, HTC held, held that for a long time, and then it kind of... LG had a bit of a go, then it was Samsung was the nice Android phone you could get. Yeah, think? yeah, Samsung seemed to have like that sort of market dominance. They've and, got scale, mm, haven't they? That's yeah. the they, they, they're an OEM for other brands as yeah. well, so they can make lots of these things. And HTC and LG are both made great products and still make great products, actually. Mm. The problem is they don't sell enough of them, so they don't make yeah. money out of it. HTC's like always hand-to-mouth, desperately trying to sort of find... That's why they're interested in things like VR and stuff like that, because it's just a low-margin business and they don't have huge scale. Mm. LG is an interesting one to watch. The G6, which we know is coming this year, will be a very interesting phone, because a bit like Samsung, they do make a lot of the components themselves, particularly the displays, which is what's critical. Mm. Yeah. Samsung's just huge and makes great products yeah we're expecting the g6 at mobile world congress and it's my gut feeling that it'd be wise for them just to do a, a, an excellent phone that is probably quite similar to samsung mm. we've seen some pictures of it again like the, the screen is pretty much edge to edge um and they've tried to be a bit quirky with the last two phones like the g4 was kind of had a ceramic back and you could get a leather one yeah and it was yeah. a bit bent it was kind of like curved <clears throat> but like like a sort of banana shape and then <laughs> and the g5 had all these mods you could take in and out of it but they only released about four and no one bought it and the g3 was the one which i think you may yep. be recalling g2 and g3 tamlin were the ones that were hands down the best phones on the market mm. at the time yeah but i don't think it did them a huge amount of good they were the first people to have true HD on display. Yes. Which yeah. is not something you need particularly, but again, I, I mean, I had the G3 because as soon as you saw that next to another phone, the kind of magpie in you is like, I want that. Yeah. That's the one that looks nice. It definitely did that. And then, like you say, HTC just doesn't have the scale anymore. And they've just released a phone uh, what's coming out soon. It's called the HTC U Ultra, um, which seems like a very weird phone to me. That it's re- Sounds like a political organisation. <laughs> <laughs> the HDU Ultras. <laughs> They're, uh, it's just such a strange phone. Um, uh, Chris Martin has had a hands-on with it. And I don't know, he, he quite liked it. But for me, they're a company that can't get away with doing things that other companies can. Yeah. They're releasing a phone that is below flagship spec, doesn't have a headphone jack. Um, it has like a weird second screen at the top of the other screen where all your notifications gather. It's very weird. And it's like more expensive than the S7 Edge. Gonna struggle. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a little bit. It's a tough sell. But it's not the only brand that we'll see trying to make a comeback this year. We're expecting at Mobile World Congress as well to see a Nokia. Yeah, this is really interesting because, like, I mean, certainly going from our web traffic, people are hugely interested in this. Yeah, and we understand that they've had a lot of registrations before it goes on sale. Yeah, they have. So the they're doing the same thing that BlackBerry's doing by keeping the brand but outsourcing the manufacturing to another company. So it's gonna be a phone made by HMD but with Nokia all over it. It's the first Android Nokia, which just, just come out in China, just sold out its hundreds of thousands of pre-sale. Mm. Um, and it's £200, I think. Ooh, um, wow. So it's got a Snapdragon 430, which um, my fellow... One of the great processors. My fellow nerds will, <laughs> will appreciate for its processing, um, but it's mid-range. Um, okay. But it's, I mean... Mid-range is all you need, though, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, if you've got RAM and you don't want to, like, you know, record a blockbuster on it, then <laughs> you'll be all right. But I think MWC were actually... Hopefully, you're going to see a, a, a flagship spec Nokia phone um, running Android. See, Nokia is one of those companies that could do a like below flagship spec device as well because it's got that name recognition that people would just buy it. Yeah, and it's not been long since the, those Microsoft Nokia phones were out as well. The sure. Lum- Lumia. Well, that's the interesting thing. What did Microsoft buy? Yeah. <laughs> no one really knows. <laughs> it bought. It bought. It did buy Nokia, the the handset division. It laid a lot of people off, and it made some 
some decent phones and then yeah. but then they rebranded it and tried to make it a mid-range. The Windows phones were really good, but it just seems odd that now, because this is not Windows, this is not Microsoft, this is Nokia, the old company. Yeah, it's, it's HMD, which is another Finnish right. company. Um, now owns the brand. Yes. Make it, yeah. Yeah. You know, um, when, when Nokia was sort of going down the pan and firing a bunch of people and just before it got sold off to Microsoft, it was still performing really well in the BRICS countries. Yeah. So I wonder if it can mm. sort of take that territory. Yeah, yeah, completely. Well, that, I mean, that's, and that's the thing that we um, often don't notice. So like, for instance, oh, what's the phone company that Lenovo bought? Motorola. Motorola, right. So the principal reason for that is because, again, Motorola has huge name recognition in, uh, what's the BRICS countries? Brazil, India, China. China, okay. But also sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. All these places where actually the real growth in terms of people who don't have smartphones is going to come, not least because there isn't great infrastructure for traditional broadband, if you like. So the way people are getting online is is through um, smart devices. And companies like Apple are nowhere in those countries. No. Quite deliberately, actually. Apple, Apple mm-hmm. sells the iPhone in Brazil and it's like the equivalent of a £1,000 because... Mm-hmm. It's not worth it to them to sell it into that territory for less than that. That's their model. Whereas these big, large-scale phone manufacturers, th- their game is to try and win those new users, I guess, in what we might call sort of the not the developing world, but the emerging economies. <coughs> the emerging <laughs> economies. Yeah, like Nokia is targeting China and also India. This is where that that, that Android phone will do very well. Yeah. How interesting. Uh, just quickly. Um, Going back to Samsung, would everybody here buy a Samsung phone after the Note? I had yeah, I had the Galaxy S6 and it was very good apart from the battery life. Um, I've since got an iPhone, <laughs> but I would go back to it. I think the S7 is a great phone and I, it hasn't put me off actually. No, guys, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm not one for getting getting phones as they're released because I think they're just ludicrously expensive. Yeah, it's anyway. like buying a yeah. new car. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just not the but smart thing to do. I, I would definitely look into it down the line, probably. Definitely, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, similar. Just give it a little bit of time, make sure they're not exploding at people. <laughs> yeah. And uh, assuming that's all good, yeah, I'll be up for it. Cool, okay, let's uh, let's go around the room. Uh, Galaxy Quest or Galactic Mess? Uh, Henry Burrell. I've got to go with Galaxy Quest. Tamlin McGee. Galaxy Quest. Dominic. Definitely Galaxy oh. Quest. <laughs> wow, everyone loves Samsung. Okay, cool, we'll take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be talking about Maniacs. <laughs> It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine because I am mega rich and slightly mad. Tamlin McGee. <laughs> now I know where I can get a grocer tins of beans and a few bottles of water, eh? <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd probably be best off not robbing a fortified compound belonging to Tech Valley, uh, Silicon Valley billionaires. Duly uh, noted. Because there, there was a big article out in the New Yorker saying that um, as we might be aware, there's something called the prepper movement in the US, whereby paranoid people uh, buy up stocks of gold and you know build bomb shelters and so on because they're worried about the end of the world. But what's different about this story is that uh, a lot of the ultra-rich people in Silicon, Silicon Valley and San Francisco are doing it, worried right. about some kind of cataclysmic world-ending event, whether that's political, uh, economic, or natural disasters. And they are preparing for this by by buying ridiculous compounds sometimes in private islands sometimes in abandoned missile silos and fortifying and weaponizing <laughs> them and you you have to wonder like <laughs> they're just they're just waiting for it they can't wait to use their toys can they <laughs> yeah well i mean that's the that's the thing that would immediately concern me is that these people i mean 
I dare say you'll give us some examples in a second, but if these people are fantastically wealthy and also they're wealthy from tech, so they're quite influential, mm-hmm. and their plan is to check out <laughs> and leave us to it, that is somewhat concerning. It's just they're not fully engaged in the, the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a friend of mine who was a tech reporter, he's not anymore, who's been, wo- who's been working on a similar story for some time, <clears throat> and he was always, <clears throat> excuse me, and he was always uh, taken aback by how negative the view of these VCs in particular mm. was of the current political climate. And I could, I'd say there's potentially semi-convincing arguments for it. Maybe they've got the foresight to understand that politically the world is looking in pretty bad shape right now. Well, we're probably closer to the end of what you might call the, uh, the Western Empire than we are to the beginning. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think. <laughs> I mean, I've got two small children. I'd rather they could they could at least grow up without having to buy a private island. How much does a private island cost? I haven't planned for this at all. I'm more keen on the abandoned missile silo yeah. myself. I think that's where I'd go. I think you can anything you can... that sounds like a level in Goldeneye. Exactly. <laughs> so I don't know. Larry Ellison owns a private. Well, it's actually an inhabited Hawaiian island, <laughs> but he owns it. Right. <laughs> I think that's setting back. Just short of a billion or so, but don't quote me on that. Yeah, there isn't much that Larry Ellison doesn't own. No, he, yeah. he, has, a, he has a fighter jet as well. Yeah, but he's got, the, he's got the biggest yacht, hasn't he? Which is kind of the um, so he says the <laughs> dick on the table. <laughs> <laughs> US. Is, is this just like a, is this just a uh, an end result of having so much money that you just don't have anything to worry about? So you just create something slightly apocalyptic that you can afford to worry about. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it does seem to me there seems to be an element of role play about this. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, these people can afford to splurge on ridiculous sci-fi compounds and <laughs> geek out about it. But as well, like, I don't know, there have been TED Talks for years now from very rich people who say, you know, if we don't, if we don't look at distributing wealth a little bit more equally, they're going to come out for us with the pitchforks. So mm-hmm. maybe you can kind of see where they're coming from. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's some sense in that. It's always galling when that comes from an extremely rich person, though, isn't it? It is. <laughs> Rich enough to say it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, I think there's something in the American psyche, actually, the, you know, in particular about this, because there is a grand history, particularly in, you know, California is the Old West, um, of this idea of it being your duty almost to be independent and sort of anti, anti, um, not anti-government, but anti-society where everyone... Self-reliant, almost. Yeah, yeah. basically, yeah. yeah. The, the, you know, a lot of the... Uh, I'm not saying it's the same thing, but a lot of this idea of, of you know, the right to bear arms mm. it, it relates to something similar, which is a something we probably don't fully recognise in this country, given that we've never had that kind of revolution. Um, this idea that, you know, self, self-reliance is, is the term, I guess. I mean, there is a big crossover. Well, there seems to be a big crossover between... Um, these these preppers and Burning Man, the festival in the States as well, right. which yeah. in recent years is the attendance of Silicon Valley sorts has just, just skyrocketed. Mm. You know, the whole, the whole ethos of that festival being that, you know, you look after each other, but first of all, you look after yourself right. and you're self-reliant. Um, but I mean, my instinct is so that San Francisco is a strange place anyway. Right? Yeah. It's kind of an enclave of the ultra rich. So yeah. if you get enough of these people in a room and start chatting paranoid thoughts to them, like this sort of thing's bound to happen, isn't it? <laughs> well, San Francisco, especially because cause it is an enclave of the super rich. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. It's also a place where people live and have lived <clears throat> for several generations. And that classic thing of of them now not being able to afford, I mean, it's more mm-hmm. expensive than London. Yeah. So yeah. It is a, it's a really odd place for exactly that reason, because the, kind of, the, 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 the culture is just strange, because it is, if you're not super rich, you're incredibly poor, because you're living next door to super rich people. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's just a logical conclusion of, you know, driving past a makeshift tent city on the way to your <laughs> enormously expensive Silicon Valley. Well, or driving past in an, in an Uber that is driven by one of the many hundreds of Uber drivers who work in San Francisco and sleep in their cars all week because they live somewhere else in California. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no absolutely no chance they can earn a living and sleep in a bed at night. Yeah. I mean, I, I lived there for a year and I definitely saw the poor side of the city and you just, I just didn't see the rich side of it. You know they're there. Mm. But, yeah. I mean, in terms of appearances, these people do hide themselves away, the rich. And they, yeah, you just, you see you see the depravity that is on the streets of San Francisco. And there's nothing you can do about it. And the, the fact that all these tech billionaires are trying to run a, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it's a very confusing, frustrating thing, especially, like, having seen it. Because I just don't know where any, any of these rich people are. Yeah. Did you apart from um, on their private islands? <laughs> <laughs> did you what's the uh, what's the prison museum? It's brilliant. Alcatraz. Did you go to Alcatraz? <laughs> <laughs> prison museum. Oh, yeah, it was good. Larry Ellison yeah. lives in it now. Yeah. <laughs> I like Alcatraz. Yeah, it's cool. But like, I don't know. It's it's it also speaks somewhat of the egotism of these people because if you if you look at people like Peter Thiel, who I mention all the time on the podcast, <laughs> um, and Zuckerberg and so on, they've all got big egos on them. And, you know, uh, one, one of the guys that the New Yorker focuses on in this article is uh, the Reddit co-founder, whose name is, as I scroll, excuse me, <laughs> Steve Huffman, who said that he presumes that if the shit hit, did hit the fan, as he called it, he wouldn't be a slave, he'd be a leader. And it's like, <laughs> you know, nice. what, what, what do you think of yourself? 
why why is this uh why is this sort of um story exclusive to you tech billionaires then why aren't like oil barons getting worried about the uprising i mean maybe they are but it's kind of more more of an alluring story because tech's so i guess egotistical and kind mm. of ingrained in everything it's a little bit the new oil as well isn't it in the sense that in the 80s especially you know it, when Dallas went from being a small backwater to being this huge, shiny town, it was because people, some of them extremely talented, many of them very kind of brave, albeit with other people's money and resources, some of them just fantastically lucky, got unbelievably rich compared mm-hmm. to the people who lived around them. Yeah. And it created this kind of you know, literal Wild West situation where the gap between rich and poor is huge. And that's kind of what's happened in tech. Some of these people are, you know, arguably geniuses. At the same time, some of them just did the right did a, did a very smart thing at the right time and just caught a wave. Zuckerberg's classic example of that. He's managed his business far more impressively than the initial creation of Facebook, um, and it just happens to have caught this wave. And now it's a hugely successful thing. You'd almost have to. You'd almost be mental ill if you mentally ill if you didn't convince yourself that you deserved that, mm-hmm. because otherwise yeah. you'd have to live the rest of your life thinking, well, you know, somehow I pulled the ladder up through luck. Yeah, absolutely, and that breeds its own kind of paranoia, I guess. And I, th- I think that it's it's easy to kind of sneer at these people mentioned in this article, especially the guy who said he's taking up archery to defend himself. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it, it's easy to sneer uh, because you know their lives are so far detached from ours. But at the same time, it shows a certain strand of. I guess, foresight that they're anticipating kind of seismic change. Mm. And it might not go the way they expect it to go with, you know, pitchforks at the door and so on. But the fact that so many pe- enough people are doing this for it to be a trend in some circles in one of the richest areas, the richest country in the world, signifies something, I think. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yep. so guys, uh, what would you pack uh, for Armageddon? What would be, uh, would be your current, you know... If I if I sent you from this room to plan, to prep, um, a couple of books. <laughs> books. Books would be good. I always think, like if I was on Desert Island Discs, I'd probably ask for the complete works of Dickens because it'd take me a long time to read that. Mm. And that would. Mm. I'm not a huge Dickens fan, but it's episodic and it's long. So that would keep me. <laughs> you'd learn. Busy. You'd learn to be a fan, wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. maybe Beans. a twelve. A twelve. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, a friend of mine uh, eats only Twixes um, before his evening meal, and he's you know he seems to survive quite well. So. What all day? So, yeah, all day Twixer. Yeah, he's, re- he's really mm. really slim, quite a sporty guy as well. But he just <laughs> eats Twixes anyway. What do you uh, take apart from Dickens, beans, beans, beans and Dickens? Beans, <laughs> beans, <laughs> beans Dickens, and water. I mean, I, I I would like to have kind of a fairly endless supply of booze, but my worry would be pretty quickly life would revolve around drinking booze. So, mm-hmm. I think if I had. Um, a, a big bag of golf balls, and I'm not. I'm not very good at golf. But that would that would keep you busy for a good length of time. Just We're losing them and scrabbling to pick them up, and yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, the Definitely. way we the way we talk about yeah, the escaping Armageddon would be like somewhere that you go and have no resource and, not, and never be able to leave. But I presume these tech billionaires are planning to go there and still have a gay old time. They're not just going to hold themselves up and eat beans and read Dickens. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds pretty good. I mean, yeah, I mean, I would. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know specifically what, what they'll do for fun. <laughs> you know, shooting the people at their door. Yeah. They all seem to be looking Killing forward to Killing the poor uh, with their bows and arrows. Yeah. I saw this week that Bill Gates is projected by about 2020 to become the world's first trillionaire. Oh, really? Yeah. So that, he was giving his money away. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. He's becoming philanthropic in publicly... But he's still raking it in. Wow. 
That's a lot of beans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to just want to quote from the story real quick because this is kind of crazy. Um, there's a second underground complex in New Yorker writes in a silo 25 miles away. As we pulled up, a crane loomed overhead, hoisting debris from deep below the surface. The complex will contain three times the living space of the original, in part because the garage will be moved to a separate structure. Among other additions, here's the answer to your question, Henry. Yeah. It will have a bowling alley and LED windows as large as French doors to create a feeling of openness. <laughs> cool. Uh, it will also have a data center in it. So, so, nice. so bowling and... Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay, let's quickly quickly go around the room then. Uh, sensible precaution or madness gone mad, Henry. Uh, madness gone mad. Tamlin. Madness gone mad. Dominic. Yeah, madness gone mad. Okay, we'll be back uh, in a couple of seconds to talk about evil. <laughs> what a wicked game you played to make me feel this way, Dominic Preston. Evil. It's coming to our consoles again. But when? Uh, it's actually already out now. Uh, the new Resident Evil 7 uh, came out on Tuesday the 25th uh, of January. So um, it's out now after quite a few years in development. It's been about five or six years since the last sort of main entry in the series, Resident Evil 6, which did financially very well, but was critically uh, very, very, very poorly received. <laughs> Uh, and the fans weren't particularly keen on it either. Uh, and it's basically... So the Resident Evil series started off on the original PlayStation in the 90s. Classic sort of zombie survival horror. Um, emphasis on sort of, you know, very limited resources and fighting for your life all the way through. And as scary as it could be given some very limited technology at the time compared to what we're used to. Uh, and the series got bigger and bigger. And it's the publisher Capcom's it's their biggest franchise by a long, long way. Um, but as it got bigger in scale, it also got sort of more action-packed and you had to have bigger fight scenes, Is that more less, less scary, potentially? And exactly, it just got less and less scary as it went on. And uh, Resident Evil 6 in particular has a reputation for just not being a horror game in the slightest. It's still sort of called a survival horror, but really it's closer to action horror and probably you could drop the horror off entirely. Like the enemies are kind of horrific looking, you know, they're all... <laughs> bloody and pus soaked and things like that those, but those tech, tech billionaires exactly <laughs> that'd be a good sort of in-game purchase if you could you could buy a uh, underground complex and just wait out the resident evil apocalypse just do some bowling, bowling. Yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> reading dickens but you've played seven right so what's it like i've played seven so yeah it's uh it's a it's a very good game it's not quite what it looks like i think from the way it's been marketed um so they've pushed a lot this idea of it say both it's sort of a mixed message. It's a return to form and it's an entirely new thing, which is a very hard angle to sell, I guess. <laughs> so it's a return to form in that they're going back to the horror roots. They're making it scary again. It's a new thing in that they've picked a new perspective. It's now first person camera. So you're sort of inside the head of the character rather than over their shoulder. Yeah. Uh, and it's also new because the series is best known for sort of zombies and monsters like that. This has sort of gone to a sort of decrepit Louisiana plantation and you're up against basically kind of Texas Chainsaw Massacre style hillbilly cannibals. Nice. Um, <laughs> there is sort of more to it than that and as the plot goes on it does sort of loosely tie back into the wider Resident Evil world but okay. it's certainly it's, it's the kind of setting we haven't seen before and the kind of that sort of the enemies are real characters which is kind of new to the series I guess uh, rather than just sort of faceless shambling hordes. Um so all that's new. What's kind of funny playing it is how much it just feels like a really traditional Resident Evil game, actually. Um, you sort of the opening section, which is very similar to the demo they put out, 
that emphasizes the new stuff. You're sort of running and hiding a lot more than you used to. Uh, the sort of enemies you just can't kill and all you have to do is try and get away from them rather than actually fight them. But by the time you're about three hours into the game and it's about 10, 12 hours total, uh, you've picked up a flamethrower, a shotgun, a pistol, <laughs> you've got bags of ammo and there's enemies you can kill and you're just going around getting headshots and that kind of thing and picking up exactly the same kind of resources the games are famous for. You're exploring a mansion which at first felt like something very new and then you realize, oh no, it's actually really similar to the mansion from the first game. Okay. Uh, and so it's this strange mix of trying to do a lot of new stuff while also really throwing back to the original game. And it's the thing that people are getting excited about on this is that there's a VR compatible as well. Yeah, so it's the, I think the first sort of full major game to um, be entirely PlayStation VR compatible. So it's just the PlayStation version, PlayStation 4 version that's VR compatible. But you can play the entire game in PSVR. Uh, I haven't. I cannot fathom why you would. Right. Uh, the main game is for for you know for its faults, and it has a few faults. It is very very scary, pretty much all the way through. Yeah. Uh, and I just can't comprehend wanting to put. So is that VR is this similar on. to the kind of? I'm not a gamer, so forgive me. But is this similar to the sort of 3D movies? You know, don't really offer any greater immersion than a really well made movie that's just in 2D. No, so if, if you put the VR on, you have full control of the whole experience in VR. So, like I said, it's the first person view, so you put it on, it will look like you're in that world. Right. You are then walking around, interacting. Um, it is apparently a bit disorienting, because obviously it's that kind of VR challenge of your character is moving, but you in physical space are not moving. Right. Yeah. Um, and quite a few people have said the VR has made them feel a bit nauseous. Um, actually, the, the PR people, when sort of they sent over the review code, gave a warning, like, don't play the VR for too long. <laughs> Do short doses. Start with it just on your TV screen first to get used to it. So I think the feeling is, for all of the hype about you can play the whole thing in VR, I'm not sure anyone would really want to. Right. A, from the it might just be too scary to actually be enjoyable, and B, just apparently it is a bit disorienting and choppy. And I suppose VR is kind of more for the experiential games anyway, like you know the little bits I've done shooting aliens and things yeah it's kind of fun it's like going on a, a thrill ride again to use a movie analogy it's like the film gravity as opposed to mm. a more narrative story it's kind of something you experience um might be more successful than a narrative story like this sounds like yeah i think it's one of the challenges people are going to face with uh, developing for vr on an ongoing basis it's it's interesting to have a major game get ported into VR, but I don't know how often we're going to see that again because I think it's just going to suit experiences built from the ground up for VR more and, yeah, generally more that kind of drop-in. Like, you know, it's one thing to think I'm going to sit on the sofa for six hours and play yeah. Resident Evil this weekend. It's another thing to think I'm going to strap in a VR helmet and do six hours straight of VR. <laughs> I don't think that's what anyone's looking it's for. It's interesting all it the right hype now. it's getting, though. Um, I haven't played it, but um, I've always found, personally, that games can scare me way more than films can. Yeah. I don't actually remember being... Yeah. I remember seeing films that I've been, like, unsettled by or been a bit, like, jumpy. Mm. But I don't think I've ever actually been terrified watching a film. Um, and then, like, I just... I was telling Dom about this the other day, but I remember this awful PlayStation 1 game called... It was based on the Alien Resurrection movie. Sure. I bought that when I was, like, 15, and I absolutely crapped myself. <laughs> like, terrible PS1 graphics, but, like, yeah. the controller vibrates and you don't know what's going on. And, like, it's just because you're in control and yep. you know that you basically have no control. That's really interesting because that's, that's exactly what I was going to ask because, again, as a non-gamer, the <clears> thing <throat> that I really love about a great horror movie, say something like 
which again is more unsettling than particularly scary, but something like the Blair Witch Project. Yeah, yeah. Um, Actually, yeah, that's pretty. pretty what's What's really scary about that is is you don't have control. Yeah, you, you're it's a it's a first person shooter, but the director's dictating where you are, mm. and, and no like, one has any guns. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. completely. But the, but the yeah, it's a first person non shooter. But, but the bits bits where they're running or the bit at the end, without wishing to give any spoilers, um, you want to look away and you can't basically. Whereas with a game, I presume, in effect, you're the director because you're moving, yeah. particularly in, in, as you described, the change for this um, this game. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of an interesting thing in a way. You say you said with the Blair Witch Project and films like that, it's partly scary because you don't have control. Perversely, games like this can be scary because you do. Right. So I remember um, Alien Isolation, which is another Alien-linked game, uh, and actually a big inspiration for the new Resident Evil because it's also a sort of first-person horror where you have very limited resources, you can't ever kill the alien, really. You're just running and hiding from it. Um, I'm a huge fan of the alien films, but have seen them all too many times for them to scare me at all yeah. anymore. I went to play Alien Isolation, and I have never been as scared by anything <laughs> in my entire life. It took me two months to finish the game, because I could only play it for about half an hour, an hour at a time, before it was just too much, and I had to walk away and leave it. <laughs> the first time I actually encountered the alien, I just froze. Like... <laughs> because I suddenly had this responsibility I had to deal with running away from this thing. Yeah, yeah. Dropped down from a ceiling panel hissing at me. The game kind of like made a point of looking at a locker, like go hide in that locker. And I sat there with the controller in my hands, just frozen. I just couldn't move yeah. my thumbs. And I just sat there watching as this thing walked towards me and killed me. Would you yeah. have described that as an enjoyable experience? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really selling it, well aren't spent. they? Yeah. <laughs> um, enjoyable isn't quite the word, but I mean, I, I love that it could make me feel yeah. that strongly. Um, Resident Evil 7 doesn't quite get that far. It's not quite as intense an experience as that. Then maybe that's a good thing. Um, I always it think it's scary. like eating extremely hot food, though. It's, it's a bit of a... Um, it is enjoyable in a slightly different way, and one of the benefits, particularly of horror, is it's almost like a palate cleanser because you know it's not real. And yeah, it might make you shit yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. similarities. Uh, a couple of banal questions: this this Resident Evil is available for PC, PlayStation, Xbox. Yeah, exactly those three. And it's out right now. Usual sort of pricing. It's not particularly spectacularly expensive. Or... Yeah, so it's out right now. I think at the moment, sort of around launch, the PC version's the cheapest. You can get that for about 35 and the console ones are about 42 on Amazon, last time we checked. Um, they Also, it's the first third-party game to be part of the Microsoft Play Anywhere scheme, which means if you buy it for Xbox One right. or PC, you actually get to play on both of those with your save data being carried across. Oh. Which is as it should be, but it's yeah. amazing how long it's taken to get there. Exactly. And that is quite a good thing. Yeah. And it's a big benefit, and that's definitely, you can see that being from their perspective, the selling point of please buy the Xbox version, yeah. not the PS4 version. The downside is you have to buy a digital copy from the official Microsoft store for that to work. Right. If you mm-hmm. buy a physical copy or if you buy it from Steam for PC, then you don't get that set up. But does so Resident Evil live up to the hype? Is it worth, worth the wait? Because it's been quite a while coming. It has been a while coming. I think it. If you're hoping for something entirely brand new and a really innovative, game-changing horror thing, it's not quite that. If you're a long-time fan of the franchise and looking for them to go back to something that's like the original games but done better with modern tech and with a few new twists, then it's a very good example of that. Cool. Okay, let's very quickly go around the room then. Uh, good game or terrible shame? Henry Brill. <laughs> Sounds like a good game. It does sound that way, doesn't it? Tamlin? Good game. And Dominic, I think we know the answer here. But, yeah, uh... good game. I enjoyed it a lot. 
Excellent. Thanks, guys. And thank you for listening to this edition of the UK Tech Weekly Podcast. Do get in touch. Let us know your thoughts and opinions and to shake us down for cash. Or indeed, if you're interested in advertising, you can tweet us at UK Tech Podcast or email editor at idg.co.uk. We will be back next week with more informed opinion on the hottest topics in tech. So until then, find us on Acast, iTunes, SoundCloud and everywhere else. Give us a review and be nice to everybody you meet. <laughs> until next week. Say goodbye, guys. Right. Bye. Bye. UK Tech Weekly Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.